Hey, everybody, you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast where we have all kinds of smart conversations about motherhood, pregnancy, feminism, and healthcare, and where we cover all the integrated issues that support men and women to be the best parents they can be and not lose their damn minds in the process. I'm Jeannie Faulkner, and I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, which came out last summer. Um, Go buy it, please, and get a copy for your friends, sisters, daughters, cousins, whoever you know who's thinking about getting pregnant, is pregnant, or just wants the inside information on how to navigate pregnancy and prenatal care as a healthy, empowered woman. So, what's happening in the news in the world of maternal health and parenthood? Well, the election, of course, but mm, maybe I've said enough about that for a week or so. Um, There have been quite a few stories in the news lately about new studies that indicate that uh, maternal mortality rates are declining around the world, but still on the rise here in the United States. Um, And these studies are making us ask some pretty good questions about why that's happening and what we should do about that. Uh, There was a story this week in Time Magazine online that attempts to answer those questions. Um, And they talk a lot about, you know, what are the leading contributors that would cause a maternal death? And and we look at maternal mortality as, um, you know, a woman who dies from a pregnancy-related condition, uh, either during her pregnancy or in the year after she has that baby. so why are those those numbers going up in the United States? One thing that people should know is that the United States has uh, the most expensive maternal health care programs in the world. Uh, we spend more money on health care in general than any other country, and yet our outcomes kind of suck. Considering how much money and how many resources and how many brilliant minds we have here in the United States, we should be leaders in the world. And instead, we really aren't. It's kind of pathetic. Um, So, you know, what are the issues that the Time Magazine brought up that contribute to this? And one factor is that um, record, they say that record keeping problems are partly to blame. You know, um, national data on maternal mortality is kind of all over the map. And um, some health authorities argue that the uptick that we're seeing in maternal deaths is at least partially due to improved detection of pregnancy-related deaths, better record-keeping, better data management. Um, one of the the authors of a study that's referenced in this article says that 27% increase observed in her study in maternal mortality rate is a true rise in deaths, not just an improvement in reporting. So there's that. Um They also cite that more American women are obese. And this is true. This is a big factor. More women are, who are overweight or obese, um, enter into pregnancy with more chronic health problems like high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, which are all, you know, interlinked with our body weight. Um, And then a lot of women will come to their pregnancy at a relatively normal weight, but then gain a lot of weight during their pregnancy. And it's a direct link, you know, the more weight that you gain, that's beyond what we consider normal and healthy, increases your risk for pregnancy-related complications, especially 
cardiac-related events. And um, the CDC, you know, is just reporting that it's a leading contributor to pregnancy-related deaths. Um, Healthcare access is inconsistent. And they state that between 2000 and 2015, Texas saw a spike in maternal mortality during the time that the state gave its reproductive health services a complete overhaul, including closing several clinics that offered reproductive health services. In 2011, Texas' um, family planning budget was slashed by two-thirds. Now, that's just Texas, but we see incidences of you know, lack of access to healthcare facilities, doctors, affordable healthcare, all over the country. And the relationship is that, you know, if, if women cannot access the services they need before, during, and after their pregnancy, well, their health is going to be impacted. And one thing we know for sure is that any OB will tell you that the safest pregnancy a woman can have is the one she doesn't have. Pregnancy is risky for any woman, even though it's usually a normal, healthy experience. But, you know, it's especially risky when it's poorly timed or could potentially compromise a woman's health. And access to, you know, really good quality reproductive and maternal health care is key. Um, what else? Racial disparities. They talk about that. Um, for, and they cite the example that, that we use a lot. African-American women are up to three times more likely to die in pregnancy and childbirth compared to white women. They're not significantly more likely to develop conditions like, you know, hemorrhage or infection or preeclampsia, um, you know, which are the leading contributors to women's death during childbirth. Um, but African-American women are more likely to die from these conditions. So why? That's a complicated question. We know that poor access to health care, chronic stress, poor treatment at health facilities, inappropriately high-risk um, health care, even for low-risk women. Uh, there are insurance and affordability issues. Oh, so many issues. We don't know all the reasons why this startling fact is true, but we know that Racism is present in more ways than we acknowledge or that many of us are even aware of, and it impacts health and healthcare up and down the line. You know, just last week, I answered a listener's um, email who rightly called me on my description of C-section scars as pink or red. She pointed out that lots of women like herself have dark brown scars, and the way the media and I write about it it's always from a white woman's perspective, which can lead women to feel like there's something wrong with them. You know, this is true stuff and we have to talk about it. Uh, they talk about um, the rise in cesarean births and, you know, the rates of C-section deliveries among American women um, rose 53% from 1996 to 2007. And currently it accounts for about you know, one out of three births. Now, when you need one, you need one. And thank God we can do that. But nobody really thinks that one out of three women, women needs them. This isn't a major problem that can be blamed on women. Um, this big problem is caused by our healthcare system. It's caused by doing too many medically defensible 
interventions that lead to a cavalcade of interventions that eventually lead to the operating room. And of course, every labor and delivery unit has their own fully equipped state-of-the-art operating room. Um, You know, C-sections are major abdominal surgery and they can cause complications like infection and hemorrhage and uterine scarring and so on and so on. Um, So it's a factor. Uh, We also talk about women are having children later. And researchers say that since more women are delaying pregnancy until they're in their late 30s and into their 40s, um, they're coming to pregnancy with greater risks for maternal mortality because of age-related health conditions like heart disease and high blood pressure and obesity. And, you know, we talked about all of those other things, those health conditions that that we talked about before. Um, Doctors tend to deal with you know, these mothers of advanced age, advanced maternal age, um, any mom past 35, by adding more tests, treatments, and interventions. And their hope is that they're going to waylay any impending complications. But the thing is, is that most women who become pregnant after the age of 35 or 40 are perfectly healthy. There really isn't anything wrong with them. And, you know, therefore their body should probably function the way that it's designed to do. But these women, too, get the extra close medical scrutiny, the extra tests, the treatments and interventions. And we know that these can lead to more uh, interventions and tests. And all of them have their own side effects and consequences and sometimes complications. So for some women, age is definitely a health-related factor. But for many others, it's only a factor because they get placed on the medical track that's reserved for older moms, whether they need it or not. And it, you know, kind of begs the question, maybe it's not the mom, but the medical track that's the problem here. Okay, Um, so that's in the news this week. We're talking about it a lot, and it's something that I want everybody to be just, you know, thinking about it, talking about it, talk to your providers about it. It's what we need to do. And kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum, um, of the advanced maternal age spectrum, we have International Day of the Girl coming up on October 10th. And it's kind of a big deal in the development and humanitarian community because it is a day reserved to emphasize, you know, the lives, the challenges, and the pure potential that girls have that could, could dramatically change the world in very, very positive ways. Um, a lot of the work I do with care and stuff I write about for organizations like Every Mother Counts, focuses on improving women's lives and health way before they become mothers. The earlier, the better. If we can boost a girl's chances for, you know, developing physically in a normal way, getting a good education, being safe from violence and avoiding, you know, early pregnancy, early marriage, the better she'll be equipped to live up to her full potential and raise her eventual children with greater resources, you know, should she decide to have them. When girls don't get that boost, too many girls and adolescents and teenagers, they face circumstances that can kind of stop them in their tracks, or at least put the brakes on the trajectory of where their lives could go, um, you know, while they deal with raising children, or the consequences of a pregnancy. You know, adolescent pregnancy we know is a major contributor to global poverty. But it's not just in developing countries. It's also here in the United States. Now, I am not generally a big fan of the dire and scary statistics. Um, But I am going to rattle off some fairly standard teen pregnancy statistics that highlight 
why it's better to wait until you're a little older before you decide to become a parent. The thing is, most teen parents don't actually decide to become parents. They just get pregnant. You know, like 51% of pregnancies in the United States are unplanned. They happen. And, you know, there are lots of reasons why that happens. But when it does, and that mother or those parents decide to have and raise that child, then they're more likely for these things to happen, more likely to become, you know, part of the statistic. That said, though, I've known a lot of women who've been very young mothers, and they've been great at it. Um, You know, their children are wonderful people, and their lives have been fine. They've had it a lot harder than other mothers who were older when they started, you know, their mother in years, because they have to raise their children with, you know, sort of a less capacity to earn a living. It's harder for them to live independently, to get an education, to advance their career. And, you know, all the things you need to do in order to afford your kids in your life. It helps when these super young moms have a lot of really positive family support, but that doesn't always happen. Instead, you know, we treat a lot of teen moms with a big whopping dose of judgment and derision and hassle. So I'll go ahead and read those stats now, but when you hear them, remember, it doesn't really have to be this way. We can do things differently and support teenagers in different ways so they don't have to reflect these statistics. Okay, the teen birth rate comparison of 2014 provided by the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy says that between 1991 and 2014, the teen birth rate declined by an impressive 61% nationwide. And then it's kind of stood there for a while, a little stagnant. We're at a plateau. It has declined in all 50 states and among all racial ethnic groups. However, progress has been uneven. For instance, in 2014, the lowest teen pregnancy rate in the country was 10.6 births for every 1,000 girls between the ages of 15 and 19, and that was in Massachusetts. The highest rate was in Arkansas, where they had 39.5 births for every 1,000 girls of that age group. Texas came in just ahead of that with 37.8 births um, per 1,000 girls. Of those girls who became young mothers, only about 38 um, percent who have a child before age 18 graduate from high school and only about two percent get a college degree before they turn 30. Now that has a big big impact on a woman's lifetime economic picture. It's huge. There are also you know a lot of other statistics that paint a fairly disparaging picture about teen pregnancy and parenthood. Like I said before I know plenty of young moms who've made it work. But I also know lots of young mothers who really didn't have the maturity skills or resources to be the moms they could have been if only they'd waited. But they got pregnant, so they became moms. And I kind of think that the big question is, why did they get pregnant? Well, duh, they had sex, just like lots of teenagers do. Before I take this conversation very much further, though, I think it's time that we invite um, this week's guest to join us. He's a pediatrician and an adolescent medicine specialist whose career has focused on just this very topic. So let's get Dr. John Santelli on the phone. Hello, uh, Jean. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Santelli. How are you? 
I'm great. How are you tonight? I'm doing really well. It's still afternoon for me. I'm over here in Portland, <laughs> Oregon. Am I literally finding you at a cabin in the woods in New York? A uh, slight upgrade on a cabin in the woods. It's a cottage by the lake, but uh, it's it's got internet, so it's pretty semi-modern, should we say. Okay. I'm very, <laughs> very jealous of you. I could stand to be on the edge of a lake right now. It's great up here, I, uh, I must admit. How far, how far outside of the city are you? It's about 300 miles. It's actually up on uh, Lake Ontario, um, Sotus, uh, Sotus Point or Sotus Bay. And uh, my family's from the, the neighborhood here, but obviously I live in New York. So I, we come up here for, to decompress and uh, to write and to you know, see family. It's great. Yeah, 300 miles isn't that bad. Yeah, it's about... It's about six, seven hour drive. It's not so, so bad. It's not terrible. <laughs> I'm, I'm a massive driver. I'm, I'm all about the road trip. <laughs> so what I'd like to do is I'd like to, um, you know, introduce you. I'd like to read your bio and introduce you to our listeners today. And okay. after that, is it okay if we go on a first name basis? Yeah, that's everybody else. Most people call me John. Sounds good. Okay. Well, we'll <laughs> be I'll official. You, and I'll call you Gene. That's okay. Perfect. We'll be official for just a little second here then. Dr. John Santelli, chair of the Heilbrunn Department of Population and Family Health, is a pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist who joined the School of Public Health at Columbia University in 2004. Dr. Santelli serves as a senior consultant for the Allen Guttmacher Institute and is on the editorial board for the Journal of Adolescent Health. He is a past president of the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine. Whew! That's a killer bio, but now that I've <laughs> now that I've read it, you get the hard question. Tell me who okay. you, who you are and what you do. Okay, so I'm uh, just a I like to think of myself as a regular guy who uh, ended up in public health and ended up in medicine, and uh, I uh, I think adolescent medicine physicians are basically physicians who like adolescents and. Uh, so I've done, uh, yeah, I've been working for 30 years in, in various, uh, various kinds of positions. Uh, so um, I'm kind of you know, curious. Teenagers. You say you, you, and, you found yourself in global health, but there's usually a story, or in public health, that, there's usually a story that goes along with finding yourself there. So, sure. So I, uh, I've done a lot of work in the U.S., uh, in Baltimore and Atlanta and elsewhere, around the country. But, uh, oh, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I was invited to Uganda to uh, uh, meet people and, uh, there you and go. to actually visit the opening of the Rakai Health Sciences Center. And I've been going back for now for 10 years. There you go. That's the connector. <laughs> That's the connector. Yeah. And, you know, saying that you're a physician who likes adolescence makes you kind of a freaking saint in a lot of parents' minds. Tell, tell me how you actually decided that, you know, I mean, deciding on pediatrics is one thing, but then deciding on a particular, do you call it genre, branch? Specialty. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, uh, I think a lot of people are, including pediatricians, are, uh, what should we say, are not always uh, feel warm in their heart about teenagers. And I guess I always did. I mean, maybe I hadn't recovered from my own adolescence when I was in medical school. But so it, it you know, it was a, 
it felt like a good period of time for me and, uh, uh, and, a, and a good group to work with. And, uh, yeah, so I've, uh, done clinical care. I've done research with adolescents, uh, uh you know, health education with adolescents, but, uh, I think they're a pretty special group. They're the, they're clearly, uh, <laughs> our future. They don't like to be called that, but they clearly are the, the future of, uh, of mankind. Your pure and, potential. Uh, if we succeed in helping them, uh, the whole world will be better. Oh, I couldn't agree more. They hold all the potential, all of it. They, they do. Yeah, they really do. So when you're not being a physician and a clinician and a researcher, what's your thing? What do you like to do? Yeah. Oh, I like to, uh, I have a couple of teenagers at home, so that's a, uh, an interesting uh, reality check, but uh, I like to bicycle. I like to sail. I like to make cider. So, uh, yeah, and uh, I, I love to listen to jazz. Hard cider? You like to make? Yeah, ah. yeah, yeah. Big big apple producing uh, part of the world here in Western New York. Yeah, we are here in the Pacific Northwest. You'd get along mm. in Portland just fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And how old are your teenagers? One, uh, one's 18 and just uh, started college. The other's 14, just started high school. It's humbling, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, there's nothing, I mean, it's easy to be uh, an expert until you uh, have a few living at home. Oh, I know. And then, and if they're teenagers living at home, you can't be an expert because parents of teenagers are so stupid. <laughs> So say the teenagers. <laughs> yeah, Mark Twain had an expression about that. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I think... Uh, what was so it? You you go from uh, being this wonderful father in the eyes of your eight-year-old to being demoted or something uh, when they get to be 12 or 13. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and then you stay really low on the totem pole for several years. But then there's an upswing. I mean, if you've got a college kid... You're you're probably you're probably picking up some steam here. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think by the time they get into the college age, they uh, they develop a new appreciation for their parents, and uh, yeah, so it's uh, easier to hang out and uh, and uh, you know move into new roles as your uh, as your children become uh, become adults. Yeah, parents. Yeah, parenting adult kids is a totally different thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I got in touch with you because I saw um, you've published a recent study titled Understanding the Decline in Adolescent Fertility in the United States. Um, and, you know, boy, that's a loaded title, Understanding the Decline in Adolescent Fertility. What we're really saying is that you're, you're saying that the teen pregnancy rate has dropped, which we know, mm -hmm. but yeah. it's sort of stagnated and that it's... Um, you know, pretty inconsistent across the country. Am I right? Well, so uh, there clearly are uh, important historical trends in teen fertility. And actually, teen fertility was highest in the, the 1950s when, uh, you know, the overall fertility in the, in the country was pretty high. Um, it's declined through the 60s and 70s and the 80s, even the 90s. And uh, you know, there've been short periods of time when it's gone up, but in general, it's been going. It's been going down. And the last uh, since two thousand and seven, it's it's dropped. Uh, it's dropped remarkably, almost almost in half within you know a, a fairly short period of time of uh, seven or eight years. 
And, you know, the, stu- the population that you're looking at is 15 to 19-year-old females, correct? Yeah, yeah. You can also look at uh, 10 to 14-year-old uh, yeah, young women. Uh, actually, the, the, there's even, recently, there's even bigger declines among 10 to 14-year-olds. I mean, the, the rates in that age are um, smaller, thank goodness. That's, a, that's not a good time to be, uh, become a mother. But, uh, um, yeah, but the, the biggest declines have actually been in the under 15, and then next have been in the 15 to 17. Okay. Year-olds. So oftentimes with these studies, you know, the language um, that, you know, researchers use just in writing things, it makes it hard for most people to understand what the data means. <laughs> so can okay. you, you know, explain what you were looking for in this study in, in sort of easy terms? Sure, sure. Well, so, so let, me, let me give you a basic um, demography lesson, but it'll, I promise it'll be easy. Uh, so you can think about, uh, you know, adolescent birth rates or, adult, you know, an adolescent becoming pregnant and, and, then, um, and then delivering as the result of social factors or economic factors. Um, but you can also think about it as the result of, uh, um, you know, behavioral factors. The behavioral factors are, are somewhat easier to think about. I mean, you have to worry about whether a young person is, is having sex they've ever had sex or they're currently having sex. And you have to look at whether they're, um, you know, using contraception. And uh, finally, you, you can look at the, uh, the influence of abortion on birth rates. Uh, so that's what this, the recent study looked at. We've got a couple other studies that have also looked at social factors. So not, I think we all, I think people know this, but kids who grow up in poverty, who come from single parent families, uh, who are not doing well in school, those young people, those young ladies are much more likely to become uh, teen mothers. Sure. We hear about those kinds of things and everybody says, yeah, yeah, okay, we've heard that. But when you really dial down into it and recognize why, why is that? You know, it's a, it's a kind of a different story, you know? I mean, it well, can I be think... things like if you grow up in poverty, you don't have the pocket change to go buy some condoms. Or if you live in, you know, a rural part of the country, you don't have transportation to go to a clinic to get birth control. Right. So, so poverty clearly affects your ability to, uh, you know, engage in prevention. But, but uh, there's also, I think there's this huge factor that young people that have opportunities in life are much less likely to become teen parents. In other words, those that have, uh, Good at you know who come from intact families whose family value whose families value education where the young person themselves are doing well in school um, those young people are just much more likely to take the kind of precautions either they're not going to be having sex or they're going to be using contraception more consistently so uh, and that's that's a pretty that's a pretty universal phenomenon. So kids that have opportunities in life for education, for employment, for, for a better life are much less likely to become teen parents. Yeah, yeah. So in your study, did you find that the decline in adolescent pregnancy rate was directly associated with using contraceptives more often? Yeah, so we, 
to to simplify the because uh, it's a I'll, to simplify the statistics, which I'm sure the readers don't want to uh, go into. I'm happy to if anybody wants to talk to me about that, they can call me up, but or send me an email. But no, so we we simplified the thinking about this to say there's that there's two primary components to whether a young person um, you know becomes pregnant. And it's really whether they're having sex and whether the sex that they're having is protected. And uh, we developed a, a fancy statistical formula that looked at the risk of a young person, um, you know, becoming pregnant. So if they were uh, sexually active and not using any contraception, they have a very high risk of getting pregnant. If they're yes, they do. sexually <laughs> active but using a a uh, effective contraceptive method, they have a much lower likelihood of uh, of getting pregnant. If they're not having sex at all, then they're obviously they have no risk of of getting pregnant. So we we both looked at the the uh, how effective the method that young people were using um, and whether they were having sex or not. Okay, and what did you find? Well, we, we found, this is the, I uh, did the study with Laura Lindbergh at the Guttmacher Institute. We've now done, oh, I don't know, five or six of these different, five, five or six of these studies going back to 1991 uh, through the present. And what we've found in general is there's been some small decrease in uh, the percentage of young people who are sexually active or sexually experienced, okay? So there's some attribution, if you will, or some uh, part of the answer is uh, fewer young people are having sex. But most of the explanation, and in fact, all of the explanation in the most recent study was the result of, result of better contraceptive use. That's encouraging to me. <laughs> it's very encouraging to me. Well, I mean, so so why are young people doing a better job of using contraception. I think uh, um, they see opportunities in their lives. Uh, you know, go back to that. They see uh, new role models. Some of, the, some of the biggest declines have been in the youngest teenage girls. And some of the declines have all, some of the bigger declines have also been among um, African-American and Hispanic youth. And again, uh, many of them come to this country with families you know, with not great education, say from Mexico, or they've been denied education, you know, in the case of African American youth. And some of that is turning around in the in this in this country. So there are better educational opportunities for young minority women. And uh, I think, you know, they uh, all communities realize how important um, education is to their future. And so um, we're, we're, but we're clearly measuring that in terms of, of better contraceptive use. What are they using? What are kids using? And where are they getting it? <laughs> they, they use a lot of different methods. So the condom is still uh, very popular, particularly uh, when kids initiate uh, uh, sex or they start having sex for the first time or when they have a new partner. And that makes sense. Um, but what we found in the recent study, there was actually a big bump up in uh, use of uh, 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 birth control pills. Some very small increase in what are called uh, long-acting reversible contraception, things like the IUD and the implant. Those are highly effective, but uh, haven't 
caught on. They're catching on, but haven't uh, really caught on for uh, for adolescence yet. But we expect to see that. Uh, kind of requires uh, a lot of skills to be able to get the longer acting. You know, even birth control pills. For, I mean, you have to be able to get yourself physically to a provider who can prescribe them. You have to, you know, drum up the money or find the resources somehow to pay for it. I mean, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of barriers to contraceptive access here. All the ones you just mentioned, getting into clinic, getting transportation to clinic, being able to pay for it. So there are public programs that try to make it uh, less expensive for young people. There's there's a movement afoot to take the birth control pill over the counter, which would be uh, which be which would be great. And the you know the latest effort, and it's been very successful in local communities, is to is to uh, increase access to uh, you know again long acting reversible contraception. So things like the IUD and the implant, which are um, highly effective contraception. Um, you know, we're seeing a lots of local and national efforts to, to make that more available. They're very expensive methods, uh, but uh, what we're seeing is the development of public programs, some cases private programs, to make those more accessible to young people. Yeah. I remember that, you know, when I was working in labor and delivery and we would get the very, very, very young mom, so often it was she got pregnant um, because she just didn't really, she didn't really realize that sex was going to happen. You know, it was the first time and it just went further than they thought it was because they didn't have the experience. And of course, then they didn't have any, you know, they didn't have a condom or they didn't have any preparation. And, uh, you know, I, I've raised quite a few adolescents. <laughs> I look at that and I think, yeah, that makes sense. You know? So- no, I mean, I, I think that's true. I think young people, you know, we don't do a good job. I mean, we can blame the adolescents, but I think it's perhaps better to to think about where adults have failed young people. I mean, we don't necessarily prepare them for what is is pretty universal in 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 every country and every society that young people uh, initiate sex. But we we don't necessarily provide young people with a good sex education or make services real accessible. And so it's not surprising that. You know, a young person who doesn't expect to have sex, it occurs, and then they're not prepared. Uh, you see him. You, I used to see him all the time in the emergency room, and you know, the someone's eight months pregnant, and they didn't realize what was going on, and oh boy, what a mess! I know it. It's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. Then and then from the emergency room, they'd you know turf them on up to my unit, labor and delivery, yeah. where. We'd have the hard conversations with the frightened child and their disturbed parents and, you know, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So so we're doing a better job, although, um, you know, collectively because the birth rates are down. But still, a lot of most of the, the teen births that are still occurring are mistimed, you know, unwanted. You know, the young person still is not really ready to be a parent. And so... Uh, then it means they may have to stop school, you know, or or whatever. So, so it can have some serious consequences for young people. So, in your in your conversations with with adolescent patients and in your research, where are teenagers getting it? Where where are they getting their contraceptives? And where are they getting their sex ed information? 
Well, okay, that's okay. Two very different uh, questions. I know, let me, right? Let me, try, let me try to do each one in turn. I, I think young people, uh, again, they're using condoms and they get those from multiple sources because they're over the counter and they can get them at a drugstore and they can walk in or there's a condom availability program in their, in their high school. So people get condoms everywhere. Um, you know, when it comes to the pill or other prepared methods, it, you know, overwhelmingly it's public, uh, public clinics, uh, Planned Parenthood, um, uh, you know, state and local health department clinics. So those are really important. I think many pediatricians are now trying to uh, prescribe contraception and, uh, and uh, obviously family docs do. But, uh, you know, young people are intimidated going in to see the doctor who uh, the, they see or their mother or that sees their mother. So they, uh, they're scared. You know, and uh, the OBGYNs have done a great job, you know, uh, opening up the doors to young people. So I, I think, you know, young people get contraception from a lot of sources. The, uh, when it comes to sexual health information, um, I think the tragedy right now is that uh, we're seeing declines nationally in the number of young people that are getting sex ed in, in, uh, in school, in, you know, particularly high school, middle school. And, and I mean, I, I say that's a tragedy because, I mean, that's a great place for young people to get accurate information from somebody that... Uh, is trustworthy and uh, whatnot, but uh, you know it's very clear that uh, over the, you know, since about uh, 2005, uh, we've seen declines in the number of young people getting, um, you know, sex education in school. So, well, what's happening, which is remarkable and interesting and uh, probably ultimately good, is that young people are increasingly getting information on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, they're getting, inf I mean, the, the problem with the internet is there's a lot of misinformation. Quality of, of information uh, can be really variable. <laughs> yeah, it's highly variable. There's pornography and there's very, and, there, and there's also really good, high quality sex education on the internet. I mean, young people are pretty sophisticated. I think uh, they know how to find information. Uh, and overwhelmingly, I mean, the studies we've done said, you know, they Google stuff and uh, just like adults do. And then, they, but, they, but they're smart to look for what they think of as, uh, as more accurate, uh, so, you know, websites. So they'll go to the CDC website. They'll go to website uh, WebMD. They'll go to uh, sites designed for teenagers uh, like Bedsider and uh, sites uh, Scarlet Teen. There's a, there's a whole set of really good, uh, today websites that are designed for young people. Yeah, they do a pretty good job. I really think that it's, we've got a missed opportunity here in terms of educating um, middle schoolers and high schools in the stuff in life that they actually know. I mean, you really could get through your entire life without ever needing calculus. But you need to, I mean, <laughs> yeah. really, you could. You could get through you your could. entire life without ever knowing how to conjugate you know, a French verb, but you gotta know how to keep yourself healthy. You gotta know how to prevent pregnancies and, you know, so many other basic life lessons like how to balance a checkbook and pay a bill. We don't teach yeah. kids that stuff. We don't teach some of the practical stuff in school. No. So, I mean, the average, uh, 
the average woman today, adult woman, will have two kids, um, and they'll be sexually active probably for about 35 years between when they start getting their periods and when they reach uh, um, uh, menopause. So, you know, you need to be protected for 30, basically 33 of the 35 years uh, to, sim to simplify it. So, yeah, but we don't teach about that stuff sometimes. And, you know what a lot of, you know what a lot of women say, John? They say that the last time, adult women, women, you know, who are beyond motherhood, um, they yeah. say that the last time they had any real sex ed or real um, education about their own sexual or reproductive health was when they got their period. And then they don't get it again. They might get information about their pregnancy, but they don't get yeah. basic sexual health information again. Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> so we're not talking way. about it in adolescence. We're not teaching it in school. We're not having conversations. Mm -hmm. That's what we're here for today, huh? <laughs> Yeah. So people, yeah, I know that one of the best things you can do is talk to people. <laughs> you know, you can solve most of your problems by, uh, you know, seeking advice from friends and uh, colleagues and people that are sometimes smarter than you. And so, uh, you know, I think we, uh, we're all smart to do that in all phases of life, but I think around sex and sex education, you know, it's great to find a, um, a mom that you can talk about it with or a grandmother or an aunt or you know, a, a teacher at school uh, or somebody in clinic that you can really talk to about these things. Because, you know, life is complicated and it's not just pregnancy, it's STDs, it's, uh, you know, prevention of cancer, It's but it's also the emotional content of, uh, you know, relationships. And you know, not everybody's in a good relationship and not everybody knows how to fix that. And so, uh, you know, we really need to talk to young people more about these things. What about areas of the country where um, healthcare and contraception are harder to get? And I'm thinking like, well, I know that on the task force to prevent teen and unplanned pregnancy, they do a 50-state comparison of the you know the highest mm. and lowest pregnancy rates. And Arkansas comes in with the highest at almost 40 um, teen pregnancies for every thousand girls. And Massachusetts yeah. is the lowest, like ten point six, as opposed to almost. Where's the lowest in your in your numbers, Massachusetts? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and um, Arkansas was the highest, but Texas is just you know right up. It's, I think it was like thirty six, thirty seven, um, births. They're not doing well, and I'm wondering if you yeah. have something to say about the connection between closure of health clinics and pregnancy rates. Yeah, no, so there's there's a huge regional variation uh, just looking at states. It's about it's almost threefold difference between uh, the states with the lowest rates of uh, teen births and the states with the highest. The highest rates are tend to be the sort of southern um, middle of the country from, you know, Georgia over to Texas. Um, and so so why is that? I mean, those states have arguably more poverty, um, so that may be part of an explanation. But they also perhaps are not doing a very good job with sex education or access. So many of those states are uh, abstinence-only states, um, so that's all they're teaching young people. They're not teaching about contraception. 
And uh, in many of those states, and Texas has been the, the, the glaring example of where they've uh, dismantled the uh, clinical care system. So it's harder and harder for young people, not, not only getting an abortion, but just to get contraception. And uh, I know, I real, you know, we, we both realize abortion is a very sensitive subject and it's a, it's a, it's a deep decision for anybody that has to go through that. But, um, you know, most 97% of Americans have used contraception. And uh, I don't think that's in the, on the same level of controversy. But what we see are, you know, state governments in some cases uh, turning back the uh, turning back progress in terms of access uh, for teen women, but, you know, even adult women in terms of the clinic system. So let's talk a little bit about why we don't want teenagers to become parents. And, you know, we touched a little bit about it before. Mm. And I've known quite a few women who have become teen parents. And for the most part, they've done a fine job of parenting their kids. Mm -hmm. It's been a lot harder on these women than maybe it had to be because, you know, they didn't have the age or the maturity or the job experience or the career established um, yet. And so they raised their kids with fewer resources than older parents usually have. Um, but then there's also the physical, you know, effects. There's just so many different problems that can arise from having a baby way, way, way too young. What do you see when you're seeing patients? What do you see? Well, I, I think, I think again, to simplify it, and it's helpful to simplify it so that uh, you, can, you can do the right kind of prevention work. Um, you know, there are, there are clearly some biological problems with having a baby at, at a very early age. Uh, and so we see uh, higher rates of uh, low birth weight, infant mortality. Um, we see uh, the health statistics of young children where the mother is a teen mother. Uh, those are not as good as well. Okay. Now, but uh, again, the you've got to try to tease apart the biological effects from the social effects. And it's pretty clear most teen women are poor women, the ones that become teen mothers. They're, uh, so they have a lot of other social deficits. They may not have had the education. They may come from families that are less supportive. They may, have, may not have health insurance or other sorts of problems. Um, so, uh, so, and if you're thinking about, clearly you want to you reduce things like infant mortality, low birth weight, kids with disabilities, you know, th that's, that's pretty clear. And so reducing teen births will help reduce those. However, the also you need to think about what's the future for a young person. So what's the mother's we were talking life going to be like? I work in Uganda and, and sub-Saharan Africa, and it's very common for people to start families uh, in um, much of sub-Saharan Africa in their mid-teen years. So it's not, it's not surprising to see a 15, 16, 17-year-old who's uh, already started a family. M many of them are married at an early age. So sure, there's biological problems, but there's also a huge problem that those young people don't get to finish their education. In some cases, they don't have access to education, but as, as education has become increasingly available, in uh, in those in, in countries in Africa and Asia, we see that teen birth rates are also dropping pretty fast. So again, a young person in the U.S. who uh, has a baby when she's 16 
Will she finish high school? Many of them do. Many of them are good parents. They're good mothers. But it's harder. And, you know, they're not going to probably, they're less likely to get to college. They're less likely to get a good job. They're less likely to get a good paycheck. So it's it's not that they're all bad mothers. That's not true. Many of them are, are you know, work really hard at being good mothers, but they have all these barriers and having the baby at an early age is, you know, becomes another barrier for them to, su- to succeed in life. So I know your study, you know, focuses on girls and teenagers in the U.S., but um, you know, as you mentioned, this is a big problem for girls and young women all over the world. And, you know, with International Day of the Girl coming up on the 10th of October, you know, we're going to yeah. we're going to see a, a lot of conversation around around this very topic. And, you know, in developing countries and in countries where healthcare or contraception is hard to get, you know, primarily because of, you know, economic or cultural or social or religious or financial reasons, we see more um, young girls and teenagers becoming mothers. And huge mm-hmm. problems, you know, in for mothers in developing countries where they don't have access to the healthcare they need, you see fistulas, you see, you know, um, high rates of maternal and infant mortality. Right. Here in the United States, it's still a mess, but it's a different mess. No, so, no, but, uh, so the, you know, the same story is occurring everywhere on the globe. We've mm-hmm. got another study that, uh, I'll have to send you, but it's not going to be ready for, uh, the international year, the girl, um, uh, you know, what's what's going on is education is rising very rapidly around the globe. So access for, for particularly for young girls to education. And that's probably the best. That's one of the best things we can do for young women and for young men. Um, you know, educated adolescents make better parents. They make they take care of their own health uh, in a better way. So we're seeing rapidly declining rates uh, of teen births all around the all around the globe, and, and in fact, the, you know, in, including places like Sub-Saharan Africa, which have had very high rates. And those, and again, it's highly correlated to access to girls' education and efforts to to help young girls, you know, join work, you know, finish, get an education. Uh, delay marriage until you know their twenties, and uh, to join the workforce. And so, those efforts are, uh, uh, in fact, the U.S. U.S. federal government through its Dreams Initiative, um, you know, in some places like Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia, is doing some really remarkable work on, uh, you know, programs to help young girls uh, finish their education and succeed in life. So, you know. Uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we didn't have schools for young girls. Today, today we have schools for many of them. Um, and now the trick is to uh, build the supports in so that those young girls, um, you know, can, can go to school. Because in many, in many countries, you know, parents want to put uh, young people to work right away. Uh, they, want, they want them to leave school at 12 or 13 because the they're needed to work on the farm or in the family business. I think that's changing, but uh, you know, it takes it takes a while to change 
those kind of cultural uh, patterns. Uh, but, you know, I think we're, I'm very optimistic about, you know, what's going on. We just, we just wrote a report uh, that's called, it was called the, uh, it's called Our Future, but it was the, the Lancet Commission on Adolescent Health and Well-Being. And it really, uh, I think we did a, a good job with documenting the importance of uh, educating young people, uh, young girls and young boys, and uh, that that's a real six. That's a real way to improve health. It's obviously makes you smarter, but it's obviously a great way to uh, improve health as well. Yeah, across the board, no matter where you live, it's yeah, yeah. It's yeah. always the cultural and social issues that are present the biggest barriers, no matter whether you're in Texas or. Oregon or New York or Zimbabwe or wherever. Yeah. 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 We are telling yeah, the same is, story. Remember, you remember Marion Edelman Wright? I think she uh, said a long time ago, the the best contraceptives is a bright future. Yeah. And uh, she, she was right about that. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, we have um, talked quite a bit about this subject. Um, is there anything else that you want the listeners to know before we ask our final questions? No, I, I well, the only thing I would say is don't give up on young people. Uh, you know, uh, there's lots of challenges to su succeeding in life, but I think the, the current generation is working uh, really hard in school and working really hard to to do better than the last generation. And there's there's a lot of parents that are, you know, particularly immigrant parents, but all parents are, you know, are trying to give kids the kind of values to succeed in life. So, so let's not give up on them. Yeah. I think we're, I think we're doing better. They're doing the really hard work that they have to do to solve some really big problems in their lifetime in this world. Yeah. And they're smart. They're smart. Yeah. Yeah. They are. Yeah. Some cases they're smarter than we, than their poor parents. But and uh, and don't they make sure that we know it? <laughs> <laughs> and they let they do let us know sometimes. So yeah. my last question that I ask everybody is some version of this: okay. Where are you in your life in terms of parenthood? Where am I? Oh, <laughs> so I I have the pleasure of being the father of a fourteen year old and an eighteen year old. Uh, so I'm now relearning adolescence uh, at home as opposed to uh, in the clinic. And uh, on some level, it's been a joy, uh, uh, particularly for the older one who's, you know, off to college. And I, I'm, I, I feel assured is going to do well in life. And the 14-year-old is still a little bit of a challenge for my wife and I. But uh, he's a great kid. He asks great questions. He's a little challenging, but... Uh, that's 14, you know, isn't it? That's 14. That's 14. <laughs> I think I, I think I caused the same gray hairs in my father, but... Uh, well, if you were uh, doing it right, you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so anyway, so I'm, you know, I'm... Uh, it, it's a period of time that can be challenging, and all adolescents are different. Uh, some are real challenging, and some are really easy, but... Uh, uh, you know, overall, you got to stick with it. Be consistent. Don't forget your job as parents. Yeah. Raise them uh, all the way through to the end. Yeah. Give them, you know, give them clear values. Tell them what you expect them to do in life and, uh, you know, hope for the best. Yeah. And they generally will live up to your expectations. 
kids kids generally you, do they're, they're they're better they're more likely to succeed if you give them strong expectations than if you don't it's not the only thing you need to do but uh so often you, know. you you hear parents especially of the super young you know they'll they'll just have toddlers and they're already saying things like oh god just wait till they're teenagers then they're going to be awful or you know and i just want to tell them just stop stop doing that they're just going to be teenagers that's all <laughs> you know they're they're going to be who they are at that age and it's not going to something to dread it's hard to predict the future it is well john it's been a real pleasure talking you to you today and i really appreciate your explaining it to us Gina, it's been it's been uh, also a pleasure for me. It's uh, it's fun to talk about these uh, issues, which which are so important for all of us. Yeah. Well, we'll talk again soon. It sounds like you have other studies for us to discuss coming down the pipeline. Uh, we do, and I'll send that new one to you. So anyway, have a good night now. You too. Good afternoon. Okay. okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Our guest today was Dr. John Centelli. You can learn more about him and his work at the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health website at www.mailman.columbia.edu. You can learn more about me at genefaulkner.com. You can email me, gene at genefaulkner. Tweet me at genefaulkner. Head on over to my website and donate to keep this conversation going. And go buy the book, will ya? Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Thanks for joining our conversation, and let's talk again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.